I would like to see a reasonable conversation for poor countries where the energy needs are so much greater, where billions of people don't have access to a cheap and reliable source of electricity or are even able to turn on a light bulb at home, where hospitals and clinics function with very intermittent, very low quality electricity. I think these are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind when we push these renewable solutions on poor countries. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. Happy New Year and welcome back to Season 3 of the show. My guest this week is Vijaya Ramachandran, who argues against a blanket ban on fossil fuel financing for low-income countries. Indeed, she argues that by pushing a renewables-only model on developing countries and expressing fear about the future emissions of these countries, including those on the African continent, Rich countries such as mine are promoting a version of green colonialism. Vijaya is an economist with extensive experience in public policy and academia, having worked for the World Bank and the UN, as well as serving on the faculty of Duke University and Georgetown University. She is currently Director for Energy and Development at the Breakthrough Institute and a non-resident fellow at the Energy for Growth Hub, and the Center for Global Development. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Happy New Year, Vijaya, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I've really enjoyed reading your work over the years, Vijaya, and um, I wanted to talk to you about something that you've been writing more of late. And let's start with the uh, recent UN climate change conference, COP26 in Glasgow, held in November of last year. And you had a lot of rich countries, the US, Britain, many other countries saying, basically, they're not going to finance fossil fuel projects. And while there are, of course, very many people who believe this is actually the right way forward, you've been arguing that rich countries are in practice talking about or even advancing a green version of colonialism. You've been particularly critical of countries, including my own country, Norway. And so I want to start there, Vijaya. You've been critical of the fact that Norway, together with uh, the Nordics and uh, other Baltic countries, has apparently urged the World Bank, and I'm not sure if this is correct, but Norway is telling the World Bank to stop financing natural gas projects in Africa and in other parts of the world by 2025. And the message apparently is that the bank should only finance clean energy solutions in low-income countries. And here, of course, there's talk about green hydrogen and, and smart microgrid networks. Now, Vijaya, this is the question to you. Why is this kind of advice coming from rich countries like Norway, like many other countries, to promote renewable energy in Africa and elsewhere? Why is it wrong, Vijaya? And why are fossil fuels still necessary? 
Thank you, Dan. Um, so let me start by talking about Norway. Natural gas prices are at record highs in Europe right now. Um, and Norway is making a lot of money expanding its exports of natural gas. It has just agreed to increase its exports by 2 billion cubic meters to alleviate Europe's acute energy shortage. Uh, its neighbors, such as the UK and other countries, are very grateful for you know this extra supply of natural gas, uh, particularly during the cold winter months. Norway, as you well know, is the most fossil fuel dependent rich country in the world. Um, its crude oil and natural gas accounts for 41% of its exports, 14% of its GDP, 14% of its government revenue, and 6 to 7% of employment. Um, it has the largest hydrocarbon reserves in Europe, and it's one of the world's largest exporters of natural gas. I find um, a conversation led by Norway and others uh, to ban the financing of natural gas projects in sub-Saharan Africa where, where people are very poor. These are some of the poorest countries in the world. They are greatly lacking in energy. Uh, they desperately need access to a wide range of energy sources. I find the conversation to ban financing of natural gas in those countries while vastly expanding consumption, production, and export in donor countries, in rich countries, a version of green colonialism. And, and that's what I've been speaking and writing about recently. Are you then thinking about the kind of hypocrisy that some people say characterizes some of these policies emanating from the rich countries? Because you have in addition to Norway, you also have, of course, the UK with some of the biggest fossil fuel subsidies in the EU. The US, as you've written about, I think, is going to increase its own domestic production. You just mentioned that Norway is indeed one of the most fossil fuel dependent rich countries in the world. And I'm actually reminded of Branko Milano, which is critique. He wrote this piece, I don't know if you read it, in July 2021. He was arguing that the Norwegian government is, of course, extremely active in talking about the threat of climate change in international forums. Norway is the virtu you know, virtually the world champion in the adoption of uh, electric cars. Uh, we've all somehow managed to make that transition. But Branko's main point there was that, you know, while all of this, the production and sales of, of oil itself, that Norway considers itself to be noxious, it is selling like the East India Company did with opium. It's selling oil to these foreigners elsewhere while staying domestically clean. And he said something like, money has no smell. So, so is that what you're pointing to, this hypocrisy, Vijaya, that uh, on the one hand, we're, do, we're relying on, on fossil fuels for our welfare, but somehow exporting all the emissions elsewhere, that we're not counting our international, the global footprint, but thinking much more nationally? So I think my argument is slightly different than that. Um, you know, I do agree with that, that uh, there is this sort of um, hypocrisy about the uh, domestic environment versus what Norway is exporting. But my, my point is actually a slightly different one, a, a different type of hypocrisy, which is that, you know, all the leaders of rich countries understand that we need energy for everything. We need energy for 
electricity in our homes, in our schools, in our hospitals. We need energy for transportation, for cooking fuel. We need energy for agriculture, uh, particularly for the production of fertilizer. And most importantly, we need um, energy sources that will address the intermittency of renewables. You know, everyone understands that in the rich world, that wind and solar alone are not going to power anybody out of poverty. You know, any project that largely re relies on renewable energy has a fossil fuel backup. There are many types of economic activities where you cannot um, complete them with renewable power. You cannot really uh, manufacture fertilizer without natural gas. You cannot build roads without wind power. You cannot power homes and schools purely with renewables. Uh, that is the hypocrisy I'm pointing out that, you know, rich country leaders understand that. They understand that in their own domestic context. The Norwegian Prime Minister in an interview with the Financial Times argued that natural gas is critical in the transition from fossil fuels to, to all renewables, you know, understanding very well that the technology doesn't yet exist to be renewables only. The, the, where I think rich countries are most hypocritical is that they are pushing the renewables only model on the poorest countries. You know, saying the World Bank, the other multilateral development banks cannot finance any kind of fossil fuel projects starting in 2025. The COP26 pledge, I think, was even earlier than that, um, signed by dozens of countries that all extensively use fossil fuels. I think that's where the hypocrisy is. You know, on the one side, they are pushing this uh, model that is not workable on poor countries. On the other side, they are themselves expanding exports, which is the case of Norway, or the case of the US, asking all oil producers globally to expand production, or you know, auctioning a billion barrels of crude oil production in the Gulf of Mexico the week after COP26. I think that's, for me, the disconnect, you know, the understanding that in the domestic context, people are not willing to pay the price of, of you know, not having enough energy. But in the international context, where there's no political price to be paid at home, you can push this model of renewables only and bans on fossil fuel financing and, you know, any other sort of virtue signaling type of activity without any consequences from a, in a political sense. Some of these policies are actually affecting us now. Um, as I speak to you today, I'm in a relatively cold basement of my house, and we are all trying to save energy because electricity prices have you know, gone through the roof. And we've never in Norway had this problem, not at least as I can remember the last 30 years that I've lived here, where you know we've been thinking about saving energy as much as we are doing now. And some of the public discourse is based on how renewable energy is just insufficient, that if Germany doesn't have a windy day, we are all actually paying much more for the electricity that we use than, you know, if if it is a good day in Germany. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction here now on why we've sort of had these uh, under sort of sea cables to the UK to uh, mainland Europe to sell some of the excess electricity that we have. So the, the point here is that even here, one is beginning to doubt whether that transition, that green transition 
that we were all looking forward to, whether that is going to go off as smoothly as possible or, or as smoothly as we'd expected. But of course, you're right that it is a lot easier to preach abroad than to preach at home. And here, of course, there are lots of political debates, as you, I'm sure, are aware of. There is a lot of disagreement. The prime minister, of course, has been reluctant to commit to phase out fossil fuels than some of the green parties have been, you know, arguing for. Yeah, I think there are some technical issues around this, Dan, that are sort of coming to the forefront now that you know, countries are pushing forward in different ways on renewables. The intermittency issue which you raised is a serious one. You know, wind power has been low in Europe for several months now, and that is affecting the amount of the amount of renewables that are being supplied into the system. The, the wind is simply not blowing as much uh, as it was previously, and that's affecting, you know, the supplies of energy and consequently energy prices. So that, that, that there is an intermittency problem. Also, you know, cloudy skies can affect of solar power for the same reason. The other issue with renewables that we are yet to sort of solve is the storage issue. You know, it's extremely expensive and sometimes impossible to store. And so these sorts of issues are, you know, giving rise to the fact that you do need fossil fuel backups. You need something to smooth out the fluctuations in renewables. And without that, you then get price spikes and, and shortages and so on, which I think to some extent is affecting the situation in Europe, although that is also... I think, a quite complex situation with some issues related to pricing and so on. Nonetheless, you know, I think we are realizing in the rich countries, and, and we've known this for a while, that this transition has to occur in a manner that is reasonable as technology evolves to cope with our needs. And in most rich countries, governments understand that very well, and they are making sure that they have enough fossil fuel reserves or fossil fuel backups to supply the energy that is needed for heating, for, you know, for electricity, for homes and for industrial purposes and so on. I would like to see a similar reasonable conversation for poor countries where the energy needs are so much greater, you know, where, where billions of people don't have access to a, a cheap and reliable source of electricity or are even able to turn on a light bulb at home you know, where hospitals and clinics function with, you know, very intermittent, very low quality um, electricity. I think these are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind when we push these renewable solutions on poor countries and argue that they should be renewables only and, you know, and, and express fear about their future emissions. To me, that is a version of green colonialism. But don't you think that it is a good thing to insist on others learning from our mistakes, that there is a better way forward, that development can be greener. And if it is possible, let, let's do our bit to make it possible. Is, is that something you would agree with? You know, I would agree with that. I think that there is a better way forward for poorer countries. And I, you know, I would like to point out that several countries in Sub-Saharan Africa are majority renewables already. You know, Kenya probably leading the pack with um, 80 to 90 percent renewable because it has vast um, quantities of geothermal energy available to it. Poor countries are taking a different path and those that are yet to industrialize are, uh, you know, making a use of the renewable technologies that are available. In my view, that's a very good thing. And we do want 
countries to have a cleaner path to industrialization than has historically been the case. I think what is very counterproductive is to cut off all kinds of other types of energy right now and insist that these countries be 100% renewable. That is effectively what a fossil fuel financing ban will do for poor countries because they do need, you know, IDA countries need international guarantors. They need international financing. And cutting off that financing immediately is a terrible idea because while these countries are transitioning to majority renewable and exploring renewables, they are no, they are not at the point, and nobody is at a point where you can be 100% renewable immediately. I think that is the problem that we are facing currently, and that's devastating for poor countries that need energy and vast amounts of energy to alleviate poverty and to lift themselves, you know, out of uh, out of you know very low living standards and 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 sort of very poor quality energy into a better place. Place. Um, I think that's where the hypocrisy is that, you know, we're asking these countries to do something that we are not willing to do ourselves and that really nobody can do from a technological perspective. This is what Paul Collier, in a conversation with me earlier last year, he said this is unethical, what the rich countries are expecting poorer countries to do. I'm wondering here, Vijaya, why do you think they're doing so? Why is this advice being given? Why is it that there is so much focus on banning finance for fossil fuel investments? Is it because of this fear that is often cited that a fossil fuel boom in, in low-income parts of the world, in fast-growing regions such as the African continent, that something bad will happen. I was recently in India and there was this widespread feeling among policymakers that there's a lot of hypocrisy. And, and this was particularly related to coal. Many of these so-called rich world debates are viewed in India and elsewhere to be tantamount to scaremongering about Africa and the developing world. That's right. I think there is a lot of scaremongering going on. There's sort of a panic that brown and black people will destroy our climate ambitions. You know, the <laughs> climate ambitions of the rich world, uh, to, to put it bluntly. I, I, I think that's what is going on. I think there is a sense that, you know, we've, we've used in the rich world, we've used all the carbon we wanted to become rich. And now we want the environment to be cleaner. Climate change has become a real crisis because of our use of fossil fuels. And there's a sense that, you know, while the rich world has to grapple with this, we do not want poor countries that are yet to develop to sort of ruin the, the efforts that we're making to become cleaner or to switch to renewables. I, I find this argument to be very problematic. First of all, I, I absolutely think that rich world countries are doing very little to curb their fossil fuel emissions. Yes, they are investing in renewable technologies and there has been a transition to renewables. You know, countries are beginning to decouple, but at, a, at the level of sort of you know, imposing a carbon tax or cutting back on the consumption of red meat or banning fracking or banning the production of oil and gas on public lands. None of that has happened. There is a very clear sense amongst politicians in rich countries that imposing the burden of cutting back 
on carbon emissions on their people will lead to a political blowback and a, and a negative fallout in terms of their uh, political ambitions. Rather, they have transferred that to poor countries and, you know, and sort of um, amplified the scaremongering around Africa, around India and coal. You may remember the, the flurry of media attention because India wanted to say coal phase down, not coal phase out Indeed. in the final communique of, the, of, of COP26. So I think in some sense, politically, it's much easier to focus on India or focus on Africa um, rather than confront the challenges of cutting back on fossil fuel consumption at home. I would say that, you know, in the weeks and months after COP, we have actually seen an increase in fossil fuel use in practically every rich country in the world. While this um, hype about Africa and about poor countries and their future emissions has been sort of amped up, it, it is scaremongering, it is colonialism at its worst, I think. Um, and I fully agree with Paul Collier that this is unethical and immoral and unjust from a uh, perspective of alleviating poverty. It is a deeply unjust way of going about things. But another way of looking at it, Vijaya, the counter argument is, of course, if and let's talk about coal, if India and China don't reduce their reliance on coal, none of the climate change targets are to be realized. So don't you think it is natural to sort of point the finger at some of these big emerging countries and their reliance on fossil fuels? I think there's no question that everybody needs to think about reducing their fossil fuel consumption. You know, all the rich countries, as well as India and China, and perhaps even some others um, in the emerging market category. And I will say that India is making considerable strides towards this goal. You know, every country has its nationally defined contributions, which it has declared through the COP process. Um, and India has made a declaration to switch, you know, away from fossil fuels. It has very ambitious solar energy targets to, to increase its solar energy production to, I think, 5,000 to 6,000 gigawatts in the next several decades. It has ambitions to, you know, expand away from coal. I, I think these sorts of things need to be recognized. I think what's not possible for India to do is to end its coal production tomorrow. You know, that's, I think that's where it's unrealistic. There are um, several districts in India that depend on coal revenues. There are tax revenues generated from coal that finance public services. There are millions of people employed in the coal sector. This is going to be a very difficult transition for India. It has made several commitments to to, to undertake this transition that must be taken seriously rather than sort of being, you know, all hyped up about a particular word in a communique and ignoring all the stuff that they're actually doing and also ignoring how difficult it is to transition away from coal. Something that politicians understand within their own countries in the rich world, how difficult it is to transition away from fossil fuel dependence. But when it comes to India and China, there's a sort of hype to the conversation that I think is not productive. You know, it's certainly not something that India and China appreciate, nor is it contributing to speeding up their efforts to move away from coal. It simply, I think, creates a sense of distrust and a sense that rich countries are behaving in a very hypocritical manner. You know, I was in Delhi in November when 
there was so much world attention on this uh, phrase, phrase of um, phasing down versus phasing out. And there was this, everybody was blaming these two countries. And there was this feeling in Delhi among policymakers I was interacting with, you know, one of disbelief. They couldn't really understand why India was copying some of this blame. Um, in this connection, in terms of coal, Vijaya, there are some studies that have been at least talking about some sort of a projected boom in a new coal power generation in Africa. And some of these findings have been used to justify this ban on new fossil fuel projects, right? But in a piece for world development recently, Todd Moss and his colleagues, they examined, they had a look at some of these influential studies, at least two in particular, that were projecting the steep increase in African coal. And Todd and his colleagues found that Africa is not on the cusp of a coal boom, that there is actually very little evidence to justify this blanket fossil finance ban. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Dan. There, there's no coal boom in Africa. That That's just simply not true. The only country that has um, coal production to a significant degree is South Africa. And, you know, South Africa, like India, has also announced an, a nationally defined contribution and is on its way to phasing out or phasing down, whatever expression you want, uh, its coal production and, and to um, trying to figure out, you know, how to relocate workers and how to close mines and how to deal with revenue shortfalls and all the issues that arise from transition away from coal. The rest of sub-Saharan Africa is not engaged in any coal production. Production. And this idea that, um, or any significant amount of coal production, and this idea that they are increasing coal production is simply not true. I think, again, you know, it speaks to this sort of climate panic, the sense of sort of, oh, no, you know, the people in, in poor countries are going to sort of ruin our lives. In, in the case of coal in Africa, that is just simply not the case. I think the, the conversation for Africa is about natural gas, which burns twice as clean as coal and is very, very important for an energy transition for an economic growth transition for Africa as it, as it begins the process of industrialization. I think it's going to be really important for Africa to use its natural gas reserves to, to make fertilizer to in a liquefied form to improve transportation and in particular to transition away from wood, charcoal and dung fuel. The transition to clean bottled cooking gas is extremely important, I think, for Africans. And, you know, as you know, Dan, 3.8 million people a year die prematurely from the effects of indoor air pollution caused by burning wood, charcoal, animal dung or coal indoors and i think the the transition to natural gas and to and to 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 cooking gas bottled cooking gas is extremely important for poor households and i think these efforts to ban the financing of natural gas projects in in africa are largely detrimental to africans from a poverty perspective from a growth perspective and from a health perspective I'm glad you mentioned charcoal. I've been studying this in Malawi for the last few years. I'm actually writing up a piece now, almost ah, done. Okay. Yeah, and, and you know, Malawi, like many other countries in sub-Saharan Africa, has a lot of difficulty in generating power. There's just not enough electricity. 10, 11% of the population is covered by the grid, but the main problem is unreliable electricity. There's always a power cut and 
and charcoal usage has just exploded and of course there's deforestation that goes with it but the main problem or the main challenge is that there is no alternative yeah. there's no electricity and there is no cooking gas even though it is becoming somewhat more available in some of the urban areas but not to the same extent as say LPG you know these um, gas cylinders are used in India not you know that that would be wonderful for Malawi anyway so there's no electricity solar power capacity is limited it is also considered to be unreliable yes and so people then say what should we do then you know yes exactly you know deforestation is the only way out we can't think about future generations we have to survive today exactly they do have to survive today and i think this is the issue that everybody needs to keep in mind when they talk about african countries needing to use green hydrogen and smart grids and you know other such complex technologies these are simply not viable for very poor countries and they are not available to them and survival is an immediate issue you know from the perspective of malawi dan i will say Africa is sitting on 4.2 trillion cubic meters of natural gas. There are natural gas reserves all over sub-Saharan Africa, including in Mozambique, in Nigeria, several other countries. If these natural gas sources are tapped and lines are built, we can solve some of the electricity shortages in Africa. We can provide liquefied natural gas to households across East and Southern Africa. You know, we can address issues related to agricultural productivity and, and fertilizer inputs. I think these are the kinds of things that development finance banks need to be able to do. They need to be able to build these resources and invest in natural gas infrastructure to bring electricity to people's homes and to people's lives so they are not dying from indoor air pollution. You know, I want to point out that Norway has been one of the countries proposing a, a ban on, on the financing of natural gas projects in sub-Saharan Africa. Norway also has a gender equity minister. I would like to know what that minister thinks of not being able to supply women in poor households with cooking gas, you know, that is far safer for their lives than burning charcoal or burning animal dung indoors. These are the sorts of, I think, sort of uh, problems that these kinds of bans have created that have not been thought through. You know, India has made a huge push towards bottled cooking gas, and it has made a, a, a huge difference in the lives and in the health status of women and children. I don't understand why rich countries are not willing to look at these things and make reasonable kinds of proposals to development finance banks to supply electricity to poor countries like Malawi and to alleviate the kinds of health problems that arise from the use of biomass. Yeah, let's move on to actually discussing what Africans want themselves, because, you know, I've been also studying Kenya and this very well-known protest movement against a coal-fired power plant in Lamu, where the local citizens, of course, didn't want that kind of coal-fired, dirty, fuel-based energy. They wanted renewables because they felt that coal was bad, that wind and solar power is what the government in Kenya should be pushing for. 
So that was one side of the story. And then, of course, President Museveni from Uganda wrote this op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal saying basically that solar and wind force poverty on Africa. Letting us use reliable energy doesn't mean a climate disaster. Africa can't sacrifice its future prosperity for Western climate goals. The continent should balance its energy mix, not rush straight towards renewables. And so I would imagine, Vijaya, many Africans believe and, and argue like you have that maybe this ban on fossil fuels will further entrench poverty. The question is, why are these voices, differing voices, not always in unison, why are these voices then not being heard in these international debates? Is it because there's little attention given to African agency? It's, it's an excellent question, Dan. Um, I think it, you know, it, it sort of highlights the imbalance in power within these development finance agencies. It is rich countries that are the largest shareholders of the World Bank, of the regional development banks, you know, of the European Investment Bank and so on. And it is their voices that are heard. Africans have in multiple fora raised concerns about the fact that they cannot be renewables only, that they need fossil fuel backups, that they need to invest in their vast natural gas reserves to bring electricity to the people. You know, we haven't yet discussed the fact that Africa is 4% of global emissions and cumulatively less than 1% of global emissions. This is not a continent that is going to be a very large chunk of, of global emissions anytime in the, in the near future. Yet, I think, you know, your points, your question speaks to the fact that uh, rich countries dominate the conversation and they dominate the conversation at COP. You know, you mentioned Museveni's op-ed in the, in the Wall Street Journal. There's also President Buhari of Nigeria has written about this in, in, in an op-ed as well. President, uh, Vice President Osinbajo has written about this. President Chakwera has written about this, arguing that, you know, basically all of them are arguing that these kinds of bans on the finance of natural gas, particularly, will force Africa to remain poor. You know, it really is, to me, a, a very stark example of how rich countries can ignore African voices or African heads of state in favor of their own constituencies, you know, their own domestic environmental uh, movements or their own sort of priorities, which is to signal on the world stage that they care a great deal about carbon emissions. And so they're going to not finance fossil fuel projects in other countries. I think that is sort of the hypocrisy of the current conversation. And it, it does reflect a very unequal bargaining power and the very sort of unequal way in which development finance agencies are run. So the way in which, of course, some of these arguments are made in rich countries is by pointing to the fact that it's the world's poor that face the brunt of climate change or climate disruption, that they're the ones who are suffering the most, and that's why we have to do this. So there's this climate injustice or climate justice argument. What are your thoughts there? What should the EU, the US, or even the, the, the major banks, the World Bank, what should they be thinking about? Is it possible to have economic growth using fossil fuels and at the same time do something about climate change? 
Yeah, you know, on the point of the fact that the poor face the brunt of climate change, I, I could not agree more with that. That is certainly the case. They are facing the consequences of rich countries' use of carbon and of fossil fuels for you know, decades, if not centuries. Why are poor countries not able to cope with these additional events due to climate change? In large part, it's because they are poor, right? The buildings are not resilient, roads are not properly built, schools and homes are not able to withstand the effects of typhoons and hurricanes. A big part of the financing package for poor countries is going to have to be adaptation to climate change and resilient infrastructure and better access to transportation is going to involve a range of energy, including some types of fossil fuels. It doesn't have to be the kind of path that we took. It will involve you know, a higher share of renewables than in the past, but it's going to have to involve some types of fossil fuels, and in particular for Africa, I think natural gas. I think the understanding that poor countries are not able to withstand the effects of climate change because they are poor is a very big part of the story. And, and we need to sort of have the conversation from that perspective. Cutting off their energy sources is not going to make them more resilient to climate change. Uh, if, if anything, it's going to make the situation worse. So I think if I was a, a, a staff member at the World Bank or a shareholder at the World Bank, I would need to think carefully about where the World Bank can invest in renewables. And there are opportunities now to do that, that there weren't in the past. And wherever there are opportunities, those must be taken. They must be prioritized. But where also do you need a, a wider range of energy sources to make poor countries more resilient? And I think Museveni in his op-ed emphasized that point that you know poor countries need to become richer. That is one of the best ways to cope with climate change. They need to be able to adapt to the increased negative weather events and to the disaster shocks and so on. And for that, we need a much more reasonable conversation than the one we are currently having. So returning to Norway again, Vijaya, I see in some of your recent writings that you at least allude to the fact that one way in which these rich countries continue to exert some sort of pressure on poorer countries is by repackaging development aid. And in this context, of course, Norway is um, often proud of being a very generous donor. We you know, provide considerable amount of financing for different types of development. I was speaking with the current head of NORAD, Norwegian NORAD, and yes. I was asking him, you know, there are lots of people questioning, you know, whether we are greenwashing aid or greenwashing our policies by providing aid for uh, certain climate change related goals. And he said, there are actually things that we're doing that are having an impact, such as our efforts at preventing deforestation that has a major effect on emissions. And so there are certain things that Norway is doing, despite what we began the conversation with, that the production of oil, etc., is creating a lot of emissions outside the country, that Norway is somewhat, you know, making up for it. I mean, what would you say to the fact that Norway is funding to limit and reverse deforestation that, and that such initiatives do actually have an impact? 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, Norway has been a good development partner and it has funded a number of things, including projects that have, you know, increased the empowerment of women or have improved the quality of the environment and its efforts to to prevent or reverse deforestation are are, are well regarded. Uh, I, I think overall it has had a, a good track record in promoting development. Uh, I think what needs to happen for Norway and for everybody else in Europe is to think more carefully about this energy transition. You know, you don't want to end up repackaging development aid as climate transfers. You don't want to keep poor countries poor and tell them, well, we'll give you some climate aid or some climate transfers, but, you know, we can't we can't fund your energy developments to become richer. I think that is the hypocrisy that we want to avoid. Um, and unfortunately, I think not enough thought is going into this. There is so much hype around the fears about carbon emissions and about climate change that um, it is leading to, I think, very counterproductive policies when it comes to poor countries. Norway has had a long track record of investing in poor countries, of caring about poor countries. As I mentioned, you know, you have a gender equity minister who um, is focused on the empowerment of women. I think that if the development side can be acknowledged and the challenges of development can be acknowledged and and put to the front, you know, you will have a more reasonable uh, set of policies around addressing climate change. I am not unsympathetic to the fact that Norway has used its oil reserves and its gas reserves to become rich and to provide its citizens with a high standard of living um, and to provide social transfers and to be the kind of country it is. You know, that is, I think, a, a reasonable thing to do. I think what they need to think about is that other countries also have those priorities, you know, to make their their citizens better off, um, to have better infrastructure, to have better homes and hospitals and schools. Um, and how might you help countries to do that while increasing their use of renewables? We all want that. Everybody wants that, including poor countries, but not being dogmatic or unreasonable or counterproductive, you know, ending up keeping poor countries poor. I think that is the challenge for the head of NORAD, for, you know, Norway's foreign affairs infrastructure, that's the kind that's the kinds of questions they need to be asking themselves yeah that, that is a fair point because sometimes my impression is that we get caught up in these fears of you know what's going to happen and that time is of the essence and we only have this one world and we've made all these mistakes and we shouldn't allow others to make those same mistakes and there's this feeling that things have to happen very quickly you know and I think that that prevents people from thinking more about how the so-called global south thinks about these issues. I think the very fact that I was able to travel to India for the first time in two and a half years, it just was so nice to be in a different environment that the perspectives were somewhat different because you get caught up in these echo chambers back home where you think, it is the end of the world and there's no other solution. Whereas in India and elsewhere, there was this feeling I got that, no, there is a different way forward. Not everything, you know, not all hope is lost. And we, we there is another way forward. And that's why I was asking you earlier that, you know, some of the debates in these important world summits is often one-sided in the sense that the perspectives of developing countries are not heard, even though, Vijaya, India and China do have a lot of clout in these forums, don't they? 
So India and China have some clout. I think it's the, you know, the other 100 plus poor countries that don't have very much clout. And that that's, I think, what I worry about a lot. I think India can take a leadership role. India can play a very important role in balancing the conversation on poverty alleviation and climate change, you know, reminding everybody that poverty alleviation is still a really, really important thing for India and for many other countries. You know, India's um, electricity consumption is a tenth that of the United States. It's still a poor country in many aspects, and it has, as you know, hundreds of millions of poor people. And I think it can play an important role in reminding everybody about that in global fora. I think the countries I worry about are the smaller, poorer countries that don't have much of a voice that aren't often recognized, you know, where heads of state are writing in Western media, but are sort of not being recognized, where the World Bank, you know, is completely driven by the by the ambitions of, of, of the rich countries that want to signal to their domestic constituencies that they're doing something in other countries, not so much at home. Um, I think that's, that's the hypocrisy that I worry about. But I do agree with you, Dan, that, you know, being in an Indian setting or being in a setting where Poverty concerns are very significant. Is you get a very different sense of how we might go about combating climate change than you do in rich country conversations on the topic. So you know, one of the questions I ask some of the foreign policy mandarins is about India's place in the world, India's soft power or influence in the developing world is basically somewhat. It, de it depends on how India is able to project and articulate the interests on behalf of those 100 countries, you know, that uh, by giving these other countries a voice, India is seen to be doing its job as being one of the leaders, you know, of the global south. To what extent do you think India and China have been representing the interests of these other countries? I mean, from what you just said, it seemed that they were thinking more of themselves. What will it take for some of these other countries to have their interests better articulated? You know, I think they are trying to do some of that. I mean, of course, domestic concerns dominate. These are such large countries with so many development challenges within. But I liked Prime Minister Modi's speech at COP26, where he called for a trillion dollars of adaptation finance for the developing world. I think that was a broader call than just India, and it was the right call. And that that is the kind of amounts of money that we are talking about if we really want poor countries to be able to cope with the legacy emissions from, from the rich world. So I think that that was a, a good step. I think India has been an important kind of player in the conversations around transitioning away from fossil fuels, reminding everybody how difficult it is to do this and you know what some of the challenges are and what kinds of help might be needed. So I hope in the coming years that that role increases for both India and China. I think Japan, to some extent, has also been a more reasonable voice on these, on these sorts of issues. And as you know, Dan, next year's COP is going to be in Africa. So I really hope that these issues around adaptation finance, around compensation for loss and damage, which has 
you know, something that the rich world has really yet to acknowledge is an issue. I hope that these things become more prominent, that the question of energy for development, you know, the, the vast amounts of energy that are going to be needed to, to, to bring people out of poverty into middle income status or high income status, uh, achieves more prominence uh, at COPs that are held away from rich world capital. So it, it will be very interesting to see what happens this year at the, at the next COP. A final question, uh, Vijaya, and that has to do with what happened after COP, or actually what happened during the UN General Assembly in September of last year, where President Xi announced that China won't be supporting any more finance or, or will not be building any more of these coal-fired power plants on the African continent, or actually no, they're not going to build it anywhere else. Now, given that Africa, the African continent, still has this huge energy deficit, millions, hundreds of millions of people in Africa don't have access to electricity. And of course, you, you've just said that renewables alone are not going to get Africa the kind of energy it requires. What should the World Bank be doing in terms of investments? What should rich countries be doing in terms of aid and investments? What should African countries be doing to improve their access to electricity? Yeah, so first of all, Dan, you know, the, the coal financing is not a particular concern for me. I, I don't think coal has much of a future in Africa. And I think most African policymakers don't see coal as uh, as the future for, for their countries. Other than South Africa, which has to to face a number of complex challenges around coal, I think it's it's really not that much of an issue across the continent. The issue is natural gas and the financing of natural gas projects. And that I see as critical for Africa's development. That's where I think Western agencies, aid agencies, development finance banks need to think carefully. You know, can natural gas serve as a bridge fuel? Can it serve as a transition fuel? until we get to the point, probably a few decades from now, where you can in fact be renewables only, where the technologies do exist to store solar or to um, address- But Vijay, is it costly, the, the natural gas versus coal? Because coal is often sold to be as a cheap option to say hydro. So I, I, I don't think in the African context that is the case, Dan, because the, the coal reserves are not as significant as the natural gas reserves. So it, it, this is really about what you have, right? As opposed to kind of what might be the cheapest. I really do think that natural gas can be exploited and extracted quite cheaply in sub-Saharan Africa. And that Africa sits on so much natural gas reserves. Coal is not as significant in the African context as natural gas. And I think most African governments are of the view that they would rather be exploiting their natural gas reserves, understanding that it burns twice as clean as coal, understanding that it can serve as a very important bridge fuel. And you know, something like fertilizer, for example, pretty much uses only natural gas. That is the, the element that is used in, in the production of the co key components of fertilizer. So I think that really is the issue for sub-Saharan Africa. It's, it's not so much exploitation of coal reserves. And, and there are substitutes, I think, for coal in sub-Saharan Africa the way there are not in other parts of the world, perhaps. And, you know, that is something that I think several people have pointed to in, in, uh, in cr criticizing the view that Africa is on the verge of some coal boom. That, that I think is simply not the case. It really is about financing um, natural gas, about financing 
bridge fuels or fuels that can serve as backups to renewables, all the while acknowledging that Africa must invest significantly in its renewables. And it is doing so. Many countries are, in fact, uh, majority renewable. So I think that's kind of where the conversation is at. And that's, I think, where development finance banks should be rather than pursuing blanket bans and, you know, making big public announcements about those. Vijaya, it was such fun to speak with you today. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much, Dan. It was a pleasure to be on your show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo's Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.